a lot of the cities where there was really high bicycle mode share, so you know, you think of a city like Davis, California, or Boulder, Colorado, those cities had some of the best safety records, not just for bicyclists, but for everybody. So they were killing far fewer people on a per population type metric. So you would think a city without a ton of bicycling would be more dangerous, but the opposite was true. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your honored host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, the 5th day of February, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Wesley Wes Marshall, a professor of civil engineering and an affiliate faculty member in planning and design at the University of Colorado, Denver. Wes focuses on transportation research and teaching dedicated to creating more sustainable, equitable, and resilient transportation systems, particularly in terms of road safety, active transportation, and transit. He has a vast body of work, and we discuss several of his most notable studies that have gained attention over the past few years, including his 2019 research paper that highlighted enhanced safety outcomes of protected bikeways for all roadway users, not just people cycling. But first, before we dive into that discussion, please allow me a moment to acknowledge that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. If you'd also like to help, please head over to my website at activetowns, that's plural, .org, and simply click on the blue donate link at the top right corner of the page. For your convenience, I've included a link in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. One last thing before we get started. If you haven't done so already, I'd be honored if you'd subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. This will not only ensure you won't miss an episode, but it also helps enhance the visibility of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, let's get this fascinating conversation with Wes Marshall rolling. Wes, so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Hey, so first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to, to meet with me virtually here over the interwebs. And I tell you what, let's let's get started with just a, learning a little bit about yourself and how you came to this field of study. That's a good question. I, that's one of the first type questions I ask people. It's always great to hear people's sort of origin story and how they got to this world. For me, I, I grew up in the Boston area, and then I, I went to undergraduate University of Virginia. When I came back to Boston, I worked at Sasaki Associates, which is a, a landscape architecture firm, and they're one of the more progressive, well-known ones around the world. And it was interesting. Like I was on the civil side, and I was sort of doing supplementary work to a lot of the kind of really cool projects, and you know, designing some streets, designing parking lots, things like that. And what I slowly came to realize is the sort of stuff we were designing and building wasn't as good as the stuff I saw around me in Boston. And I sort of noticed a disconnect. And later when I switched jobs, I moved to Connecticut and that was the first time I lived anywhere where I couldn't leave my street without being in a car. And I'm like, what the heck? How do people live like this? And nobody around me really realized that there was anything else out there. So I started digging more into it and it ended up leading me to 
to get a master's and PhD in this work. Fantastic. So you have both a background in engineering and planning. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, technically, I mean, my education is on the engineering side. So my undergraduate w- was civil. And then at University of Connecticut, I was in the civil department. But uh, I think, you know, Norman Garrick, he was my advisor. there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He, I think, along with me now, are probably some of the least engineering engineers there are. So a lot of the work we were doing is much more on the planning side and sort of my my research, like the kind of stuff I was digging into was much more on the urban planning side. So I, along the way, I, I did a lot in that world and I, I sort of bring that perspective to engineering, even though I, my degrees aren't in urban planning per se. Got it. Got it. But at the university there in Colorado, you do have joint appointments. Is that correct? Yeah. So all my classes, a lot of them get cross-listed with urban planning. A lot of the students I work with are, are urban planners. My appointment is technically a joint appointment, but the way the financials work out, it's 100% engineering. So that's just the, the way the universities work. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of my work is sort of asking research questions that I think urban planners are interested in and trying to work on themselves. Cool. Well, well, we'll talk a little bit more about the whole engineering planning in, you know, side of things in a little bit. But uh, I'm just curious, what, what's the typical day in the life like for a professor and researcher uh, in this, this arena? Um, so if you ask me that today, it might be different than a year ago. So before the pandemic, I mean, a lot of it was interacting with students, you know, so Technically, my, my job is 40% teaching, 40% research, 20% service. And, you know, given the way it is in reality, it's sort of much more research heavy than I think anyone would, would sort of imagine a professor does. And part of that is that's what you need to do to get tenure at a, at a university that's interested in research. So, you know, teaching is still a big part of it. And now that I've, you know, sort of attained like tenure and, and full professor service becomes more of a bigger part of it as well. So it really depends on the day. I, I have a lot of flexibility in terms of what I want to work on on a day-to-day basis. Of late, I've been doing a lot of research, digging into sort of the hundred-year history of road safety. I'm, I'm sort of working on something bigger in, in that world. So digging into books from like the 1930s, 1940s, and that's sort of atypical than what it had been before. Prior is much more student interaction and, and things like that. Oh, wonderful. Well, if you're into that history, I'm sure if you haven't listened to the episode uh, with uh, Peter Norton, be, for, be sure to uh, go back and listen to that. He's obviously one of the most preeminent you know, researchers and historians uh, in the, the field of traffic and mobility. Yeah, I love Peter. Uh, I, I know him pretty well. And the, the 1920s was an interesting point where his fighting traffic book sort of digs into and sort of how big of a monumental shift it was over that time. And uh, what I'm doing sort of picks up from there, sort of how we sort of designed and designed a system that uh, doesn't always really give us the best safety outcomes. Right. So when you look at the breadth of work that you're you know, actively engaged in, what are you most passionate about and fascinated by? So originally it was sort of the disconnect, like why are our guidelines and standards telling us to build things in a certain way, but then you go to places like Boston or, you know, some of the older parts of Denver or, you know, cities like Savannah or, and you see that a lot of the things that are sort of our favorite and best places you couldn't build today, you sort of wonder like, well, why is that the case? Like, what is it? And then 
you know, you think, you know, one reason might be safety or whatever it might be. And you start digging into sort of that aspect of it. And the further you dig, the more you realize there's uh, less of an empirical evidence for what we do than you sort of would have thought. Like they give us these thousand page manuals as a young civil engineer and they say, here, go use this. So you assume that they know much more than I do. But then the more you dig and dig and dig, you realize that maybe not. Like maybe there is something to these places that were built before these regulations came to being. Of late, it's been much more in sort of the safety side and sort of understanding how we can build cities and places that that are safe and not just for cars, but safe for everybody. Right. What's been the most surprising that you have seen, you know, come out of uh, of the work that you're engaged in? I, I think a lot of things. It's, it's hard to sort of pick one. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we put out a, a survey trying to understand, we called it the Scofflaw Bicycling Survey, trying to understand why bicyclists break the law. Um, we It ended up going a little bit viral. We got like 18,000 responses. Um, and for an academic survey, 18,000 responses when we're not giving people like Amazon gift cards is sort of amazing. And I got... I think I had like 50 from Peru and like these strange countries all around the world. And you know what you learned that it, it wasn't like as much the person, it was much more the place, like the sort of the social cues of the place and what it was like there made much more difference in whether people broke the law. I'm not just as a bicyclist, but as a driver, as a pedestrian. And, you know, that I think, you know, when you really thought about it, like it makes perfect sense. But at, at first you're like, oh, it must be just the young males and sort of the bike messenger type guys that are are doing that. And what we found is that very few people are reckless. Like that is a sort of a misnomer. And the reality is sort of everybody breaks the law every time they get in the transportation system. Like cars are speeding all the time, but for some reason we don't view them sort of with the same criminal mindset that a lot of people for some reason put onto bicyclists. And I, I thought that was a disconnect and it was kind of fun to prove that it was, you know, less real than I think people realized. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's evident too. in even our language, like you just said, the, the cars were speeding, you know, versus, you know, the, driver, the, the cyclists. cyclists. It's like we, yeah. we, we took the driver completely out of, oh, <laughs> yeah. of the language. And it's, that's one of the things it's interesting too, because what you're describing there is exactly uh, what I was going to bring up, which is that connection between engineering and planning and behavior, human behavior. And what you were finding was that, you know, those cyclists were behaving logically based on their situation. So it was, you know, it, it was influencing, you know, how they proceeded. Well, that's exactly what we found is they were making very rational choices given what was put in front of them. Um, and I think that's what drivers believe they're doing. That's what pedestrians believe they do when they're when they jaywalk. And I mean, that goes back to Peter Norton's work. And that behavior thing is, I think, as I sort of have d dug into the history of of engineering and why we do what we do, engineers will have something in mind that works well in theory, but they neglect the fact that by changing the road in a certain way, it changes people's behavior. Like if they behave the exact same way under both circumstances, yes, it would be safer, but that's just not what happens. Yeah. So you've mentioned safety a, a couple of different times. So uh, let, let's kind of shift gears and talk about probably one of your more popular articles to, to, to hit the, the, the mainstream back in, in 2019. And that was 
the the safety article that you know kind of looked at overall safety effects of having protected bikeways and and talk a little bit more deeply about that particular study. It's probably, I think around 2011 or 12, I wrote a study um, with Norman Garrick at UConn. And what I found in that study is that a lot of the cities where there was really high bicycle mode share. So, you know, you think of a city like Davis, California or Boulder, Colorado, those cities had some of the best safety records not just for bicyclists, but for everybody. So they were killing far fewer people on a per population type metric. So, which is interesting because I think a typical engineer would think of, well, how safe is driving compared to bicycling? How safe is driving compared to transit? And you compare it to transit, it's like, well, yeah, transit's safer than driving. We know that. So a city with a lot of transit should be safer. And that's true. But for bicycling, like you compare a lot of the statistics and bicycling seems more dangerous. So you would think a city without a ton of bicycling would be more dangerous, but the opposite was true. So the later paper, we really tried to figure out, well, why? Like, what is it? Is it safety in numbers? Is it something with a built environment? Is it who lives there? Like, are they different sort of people? And what that study found is like one of the big reasons, like with the big differences between these cities is the cities that were just building more protected and separated bikeways and bike lanes were the ones that were getting safer over time. So that was sort of a fun one to really pull together. And the safety and numbers thing was much less of an impact than we sort of thought. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, that, that theme of it being safer for everyone is a really cool place to come down on uh, in terms of, hey, it's it's safer, yes, for, for the people who happen to be riding the bikes, but it's also safer for the pedestrians and it's also safer for the motor, motor vehicle drivers. Yeah, and I think that's the way we should be looking at safety. So we think about it's similar to like a health impact. We look at things per population, but the way engineers do it is per VMT. So the more you drive, the safer you seem. So if you drive 10 miles and I drive one, you're safer than me, which doesn't make any sense. Like real safety comes from, you know, fewer people getting hurt. And if you think about it that way, those are the cities that were safer. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So (laughs) it sounds like uh, a lot of the things that you're studying are sort of digging deeper into myths that might be out there or maybe even debunking the NIMBY excuses. Where, Where do these ideas come from? A little bit. I think that that's part of it. Um, you know, one of the best ways I think to sort of find research topics is by experiencing the city and getting out there. And for me, it's biking. I think that's speed to get really to really understand a city better. And then you put that together with what drives you crazy, what's bothering you in in a place. Um, that's sort of where a lot of my research comes from. Like for instance, when I, you know, one of my early jobs, I had we had sort of a corporate, a regional office out in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, and that sort of out on the 495 belt. And a lot of people move out to that area because they want to get away from the traffic of Boston and things like that. And whenever I went out there, there was so much more traffic than there was in Boston. And part of it is because there was only one street you could get from A to B on. Like everybody had to be in the same material. So that's where I started questioning the networks. Like why do we build these tree-like networks compared to ones that are more gridded? Where like in Denver, if there's a lot of traffic on one road, I move over one road and there's no traffic. And so that is sort of where my dissertation work came from is sort of that annoyance with that topic. But then it's sort of digging into, you know, some myths like, 
you know, you, it's safer if you live on a cul-de-sac. And what I found with my dissertation is like, well, yeah, if you never leave your cul-de-sac, but the type of network that supports that, those cities are killing more people. Yeah, that's such a great point too. And it's it's also an indictment of that development pattern too, because, you know, the traditional neighborhood development pattern that existed prior to World War II of, of a gridded uh, street network and that ability to, to be able to, you know, choose alternate routes and not keep hitting <laughs> cul-de-sac dead ends is, is, is so critical. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's driving me crazy a little bit now is that a lot of cities feel they're still trying to do that complete street thing where they're putting bike facilities on streets where they really shouldn't be. And in Denver, like the way I come to work, I could go down MLK where there is a bike lane. But if I go on any of the parallel roads, it's a much better ride. So to put that bike lane there, yeah, is maybe better than it was before, but it's not the best facility for that anybody going in that direction. Well, yeah, and that's that brings up a really good point is that you kind of have to do both. You you kind of have to have that especially protected infrastructure on those arterials, those bigger bigger streets and roadways. But if you have a gridded system and you have parallel routes, you need to sort of embrace the fact that that could be a quieter street, a a more comfortable environment and with the right sort of traffic calming approach to those streets as well, uh, make them that much more acceptable to a wider audience and, and become in, in essence, a shared street situation, potentially, if, if the widths are, are appropriate and the speeds are appropriate and, and embrace that sort of, you know, feet concept of, you know, traffic calmed, it's a street where, you know, a, uh, the more vulnerable user has more priority. And as you mentioned, you're, you're not <laughs> sucking on as much uh, tail exhaust pipe, you know, emissions, and you're, you're not exposed to as many motor vehicles traveling at higher speeds. And I think also that the reason that we're finding like the protected and separated bikeways are leading to so much better safety is because we've done such a poor job with the streets in the first place. Like, we, if that original street was safer, we wouldn't need the protection that we do. And that's sort of, you know, the problem. Like we, we could rehaul the whole street and, and do a better job from the get-go. But given the current circumstance in most cities, a protected bikeway is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Especially if it was a an inherently dangerous design, like say, uh, you know, a four-lane road where, you know, that conversion of, you know, going from a four, three conversion and creating, you know, uh, protected uh, bikeways on there and having a center turn lane, you know, suddenly you're like, oh yeah, I mean, duh, you're, you're, you're creating a much safer environment while at the same time freeing up space for, for active mobility as well. At the same time, like, Protected bikeways is such a spectrum of what would be safe. Like for us in that study, it was hard to differentiate between those. Like we just didn't have enough of them to really differentiate between one that was a full concrete barrier or one that was just flex post. So I think that's something that doesn't get enough attention is like real protection is different than like a plastic baller that isn't protection. I remember when I was in... I think I was in Vancouver around 2010 and I saw, I think it was Hawthorne Street that comes sort of into the city. And 
they had these giant concrete planters separating a two-way bikeway on a one-way street. And like you think, you know, I'm being in Denver, you're in Austin, like this is the perfect design for those sort of cities, these giant one-ways that are way over capacity. When Denver finally did start getting the protection, it wasn't the same. Like it was, and in a lot of cases, I felt less safe on the protected facility than on the one that was there before. But I think over the last few years, like they're now getting better. So it's protection and a buffer and other cities are putting in, you know, what I would really consider real protection with concrete and not just the plastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to, to, to say in, that oftentimes that first attempt at protection is, is, is sort of a, the next logical incremental step to, you know, trying to get away from just paint only, <laughs> you know, it was like originally it was just that four inch painted line and then it became a painted buffer. And then from the buffer, it becomes, okay, let's put some sticks in here. It's like this incremental approach towards, you know, okay, we're going to dip our toe in the water and see if the, the earth stops spinning. And, you know, it ultimately, I think what's happening is that more and more cities are, are realizing that, you know, if we do take that plunge of creating a truly authentic, safe and inviting all ages and abilities network, amazing things can happen. You know, 15th Street in Denver is a great example of that. It's sort of two blocks from where I'm sitting right behind me right now. And you know, when I first got here, it was a four-lane, one-way arterial in downtown Denver, high speeds, one-way traffic, a lot of fast drivers. At around 2000, I guess probably 15 or so, they had planned to do a, a protected bikeway on that. But when they finally put it in, it wasn't protected at all. It was a, a buffered bike lane. And they had, you know, all these excuses about plowing and things like that. And in one of my classes, one of my students went out there and took a video of what it looked like. And what he found out is that cars were using the bike lane as a car lane, something like 60 times an hour. He ended up, he was an intern with the city. He borrowed some cones, put them out there for a couple hours and 60 cars per hour went down to two. We took some video, put it in fast motion, shared it with some people with the city. They said, please don't put this on YouTube. Like we're going to, we're trying to fix it. Like, <laughs> And within a few months, they ended up putting some real protection in. And then what's happened over time is that not only is their protection gotten better and better. So at first it was the plastic candlestick ballers. Now they're sort of real concrete in a lot of places. They just last fall took away two car lanes and put in two bus only lanes. So in the beginning, like part of the reason they couldn't do what they did is like, oh, we can't possibly take away a lane of cars. Like that would never work. And then – over time, they realize, well, it actually can. And when that happens, I think what you're talking about with incrementalism, like that tactical urbanism mindset that I think cities have now more than they used to, that is sort of helping with, with bikeways too. When we return after this very brief break, Wes addresses how street design and motor vehicle speeds often undermine some of the goals of many new urbanist developments, including the community he lives in. He also talks about his seven-mile bike commute to the University of Colorado Denver campus, and we also talk about the differences between and safety associated with a Feetstrat or Bicycle Priority Street and the lazy North American approach of slapping down sharrows inappropriately in motor vehicle lanes. But before we get into those discussions, allow me a brief break for this quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. 
You'll be helping me grow the audience and this movement to create safer, more inviting places that promote a healthy culture of activity. Okay, that's it for this short intermission. Let's bring our conversation with Wes back up to speed. So you mentioned something earlier uh, about MLK Boulevard and, and out that way. Is that out towards the old Stapleton? Yeah, that's actually the neighborhood where I live is uh, the old Stapleton. It's officially called Central Park now. The person that Stapleton was named after was apparently um, a member of the KKK, which um, led to a name change. Yeah. So it's sort of a quasi new urbanism sort of build. But as I recall, thinking uh, back about that the and the last time I was there, you're right. The streets, some of the streets are like tarmacs there. So let's talk about speed. So I actually did a paper about Stapleton and it was about the disconnect between new urbanist ideals and actual implementation of new urbanism. And that Stapleton is a, well, a neighborhood formerly known as Stapleton, but for the sake of this, we can call it Stapleton. It's interesting because they, it's one of the bigger new urbanist communities in, in the country. So a lot of smaller new urbanist communities, it's easier because you can have the big arterial outside of the neighborhood. Stapleton is big enough where those big arterials had to cut, cut through the neighborhood. MLK, Central Park Boulevard, I have, actually I have a radar gun right here. Like I've gone out there and I've collected speeds. Like the speed limit on those are 30 and 35, depending on the place. I've had cars going over 70 on it. And part of that is the design. I remember going to a public meeting and the officer there said, you know, we, we can't enforce, enforce speeds as much as we need to because it's, it's straight, wide, like big arterial. And I think, well, that's the problem. Like the problem is the way we designed it. And part of that goes back to our standards and regulations that have sort of required it. So when we're trying to build these new urbanist communities, you have to sort of bastardize what we're looking for. So you go to a lot of them and they look the part, like the architecture looks new urbanist and, you know, some of the streets look right, but at the same time, it doesn't quite get there. So you don't get the outcomes you're hoping for. And people think of new urbanism as a failure when really it's not really new urbanism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned that uh, you'll, you'll choose to ride on one of the quieter side streets that are parallel uh, to there and, and, and go through is, so is that a completely infrastructure less environment from an active mobility perspective, or is it uh, identified as a, uh, a bikeway in any any fashion? I mix it up quite a bit. I've I've tried literally every possible way I, I could get from the Stapleton neighborhood to, to downtown. Um, there's actually one bike route I could go where I I literally don't cross any streets but um, half the street behind me and my street I live on. But that one is about 14 miles as compared to seven miles the or seven and a half miles the way I, the shortest route I would go. So is that um, on a shared use path or something? That's on a shared use path that sort of follows 270 up towards Boulder and then cuts back down, you know, goes up the Sand Creek and goes back um, towards like REI on, what's the other creek there? The I ended up back on the Cherry Creek. So you're on a lot of those trails. Um, right. So that's the route you take when you, you need a little bit of extra time in the saddle just to think things through. Yeah, if I, uh, I did that a few more times during the summer when I wasn't riding sort of as much as I normally would. But at the same time, it, it follows the highway. So the air quality isn't, <laughs> isn't what I would want. Actually, um, a friend of mine just gave me an air quality meter. So I'd, I'd like to go out there and, and actually test to see what it is like. It just sort of feels less clean than it, than it should. But... Some routes, um, you know, it's interesting. You, 
depending on which way you go, you go through very different neighborhoods, um, socioeconomic and sociodemographic, and you just see such stark differences in terms of like sidewalk quality and infrastructure in terms of biking. And I think also just the perception of bicyclists. I remember, you know, going through one of the lower income neighborhoods and I was at a red light and car pulls up next to me and the guy's like, he pulls down the window. He's like, Hey man, don't worry about it. I've had a DUI too. And his thinking was that I, for me to be biking is because I had no other option. But you go through another neighborhood and people look at you as environmentally friendly and healthy. And it's sort of, there's a lot of disconnects and differences between these things. And, you know, some routes are better than others. Some routes are safer than others. I have a little GoPro. I should sort of collect the videos at some point and sort of show how different these routes are in the different neighborhoods. But like, like I said, I'm trying to understand cities better too. And doing that on my bike, on my rides is part of that. Yeah. And it's sort of that, that challenge of trying to normalize, you know, people riding bikes, uh, normalizing people riding bikes in normal clothing, you know, and, and, and just, it's like, oh, that's, that's, you know, completely normal to see that person, you know, you know going from A to B. Uh, well, you've mentioned uh, several different fun toys. I think you're, you're going to be the envy of uh, the audience here with the radar gun and the, the pollution monitor and all that good stuff. So I want to go back to the quiet street approach and 70% of the bike network that the Netherlands have is in fact not the protected separated infrastructure. It's it's actually the the feet struts and the quiet shared streets and the calm traffic calm streets. I believe you have a paper that looked at shared lane details in North America. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Uh, so Sharrows were actually invented in Denver. Um, I think the planner's name was James McKay. I believe he invented them and. Part of the reason he was trying to build better bike infrastructure, but he was, I think he heard him say something to the effect of he was under pressure to do less. And that's what we found with Sharrows. Sharrows are less. They're not, they're not bike infrastructure. They're, it's just a sign, but it just happens to be on the road. And the trouble with Sharrows that you look at the, the research and people always said that they would lead to better safety, but none of the studies actually looked at safety. They all looked at sort of where a bicyclist was in the roadway compared to parked cars or compared to where the cars are driving and where drivers sort of situated their car. So it was a step removed from actual safety. So it was interesting. Um, Chicago started collecting during crash data a few years ago, and no other cities collect that because there's no moving vehicle technically. And the theory with Sharrows is that, well, they would help with dooring crashes, right? So it would get a bicyclist out of the door zone. But we couldn't really test that because nobody had dooring crash data. Chicago started collecting it. So we did a study trying to understand, you know, were Sharrows safer or not? And it's tough. Like that study is more of a macro study, like which neighborhoods are putting in Sharrows versus bike lanes versus bikeways versus nothing. And what we found is that the ones that were focusing on Sharrows had the highest increase in bike crashes. So the ones that were doing real bike lanes or protected bike lanes had the best safety difference between before and after. And the ones that did nothing, like no new infrastructure at all, were better than the Sharrows. Right. So what we found is like nothing was better than Sharrows. And the the Sharrows 
whether it's because of you're sort of enticing people to ride on roads where they shouldn't really be in the first place might be part of it because that's often where we put sharrows and roads that couldn't fit any real bike infrastructure. We don't really know why, but sharrows were leading to the worst safety outcomes, uh, worse than nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was the the inappropriate use of of a you know a device, an attempt to say that you know, oh by the way you're welcome here <laughs> and here's where you should kind of align yourself. But at the same time, it's, it, it, it isn't a feet strut. it, you know, because the whole, the, the intent of, of a bicycle priority street is, is the fact that it is traffic calmed and the, the more vulnerable user, uh, the cyclist, the person on the bike has priority of, you know, the, the motor vehicle traffic. So, and, and the motor vehicle driver. Yeah, I think it has to go hand in hand with, with design changes. And usually design changes help intent on trying to slow drivers down. Like that's where you're going to get better safety, not just from painting chevrons and a bike symbol on the street. Yeah. So are you starting to see more uptake from the research that you've been involved with over the years actually starting to influence stuff that's going down on the ground? To some extent, I mean, I think like as a researcher, I, I think my job is almost to provide ammunition to people like you, people that are sort of more on the advocacy side. Like, and it's easy to say, oh, we should do this and this. But when you come to the table with some research that says why we should do it, whether it's for safety or for health outcomes, like lower obesity or things like that, I, I think that helps the cause. And for me, I'm just following the resources to um, – you know, what the results are telling me. And for the most part, they're always sort of promoting these same sort of things. So I think a lot of people say, oh, they think I'm an advocate, but it's really not the case. I'm just following the research and I'm trying to provide ammunition to, to folks. And uh, just the way cities have changed over the last decade, I think would have been hard to imagine 15, 20 years ago. I mean, all the, the differences in how we design streets and we're moving in the right direction. I still don't think we're there. I think you're, you're probably seeing the same things and it's, it's slower than I think a lot of us would hope for, but at least it feels like it's going in the right direction for the most part. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember working in, in downtown Denver back in the mid nineties and, and doing the, the bus commute, you know, every day from, from Boulder. And uh, now when I visit uh, the, the Denver area, I'm like, wow, yeah, this is really cool to see. And you mentioned something because your, your commute's about seven miles. So when we look at the fact that that's, that's actually a little bit further than what we would say our true sweet zone is, although I think it's starting to, to, to stretch out to, you know, that seven mile all the way up to maybe even eight or nine miles with the advent of electrical assist, you know, with the e-bikes that are starting to become more common for those longer commutes. But talk a little bit about that, because that's a huge aspect of the challenge that we have. If you're in a, in a Boston or in a more compact environment, the, the, the trips tend to be much, much shorter. And then when we're in, you know, more of the Western cities, the, those distances kind of stretch out. You know, like I said before, I tried almost every way I could get to campus as possible. And, um, you know, this is before the A-line from the airport to downtown 
was built. So I tried a bus and the bus took like 75 minutes. I was like, well, I don't have time for that. That's insane. And for the first few years, I did what I call the park and pedal. I put my bike on the back of my Jeep Wrangler. I drove about three quarters of the way and I biked the rest. Like if I had driven all the way to campus, I would spend 15 minutes looking for a parking space and then 10 more minutes walking to my office. And it made more, no sense. Plus, I had to pay for parking. The park and pedal was sort of a nice go-between. It was around then, I think I had my yearly checkup at my doctor. And he basically said my cholesterol was higher than would be preferable. And I was like, well, he said, you could go on medicine or you could do exercise. I was like, tell me like what kind of exercise we're talking about. He's like, well, basically, you need to get your heart rate up for about 25 minutes a day. My thinking is if I just switch from the park and pedal to biking the whole way, I'd get that as part of my daily routine. And six months later, my cholesterol went from not great to amazing just because of doing this. And he said he had never seen someone's cholesterol make such a change over that time. And like that was part of why I started doing it this way. And then you start realizing that you like it better and it's more enjoyable. And I, I think I do it regardless of the weather, like no matter what. I mean, I I do have um, an eco pass, so I, I can take the A-line from time to time if it's a little bit too icy or I want to do it one way or the other, depending on timing, don't want to get too sweaty. But um, for the most part, I'd say 90% of my trips at least are, are just by bike only. And like I said, I get to see sort of all different neighborhoods. I've taken sort of every route possible. And doing that at the speed of a bike is – is useful. And I think it's, you get a much different perspective than behind the windshield. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up about your health there too. And you mentioned it earlier, public health, and my background is in public health and, and I'm also an exercise physiologist. And so those, that is a huge aspect of, you know, the benefit of transforming our built environment, transforming our communities into environments, which encourage healthy activity. And, and you start to see those, you know, those critical uh, risk factors start to shift. Sedentary activity is is a primary risk factor in all of our chronic diseases. Increasing your activity is going to improve your your cholesterol profile. Specifically, it'll boost the uh, HDL ratio to in your cholesterol, and so it's quote unquote the good cholesterol gets a huge boost. And and I'm sure that's what you, what was showing up on your your blood work profile there. So that's fantastic. So. Let's talk a little bit about what you're working on now and what you're excited about in terms of the, the different research studies and, and areas of emphasis right now. One of the uh, larger research projects we have going on right now is looking at sidewalk infrastructure and, and bike infrastructure with respect to things like equality and equity. And we just put out a, a study trying to understand, like, are we installing these bike lanes and bikeways similarly in lower income, higher income black and white, Hispanic type neighborhoods. And it, it's sort of tricky because I think there you can't ignore the fact that not all neighborhoods want the same type of infrastructure, but we're just sort of wondering what's happening. We also, for that study, looked at um, sort of what we call the causality dilemma, which is that chicken or egg thing. So if you put in the bike infrastructure, does the neighborhood start to gentrify? Or does gentrification lead to more or less bike infrastructure? We're doing sort of the same thing with sidewalks. And sidewalks is particularly interesting because historically we've had such little data on sidewalks. And a lot of cities and regions are using remote sensing and able to sort of map their sidewalk 
much better than they could in the past. So with that, you know, the biggest sidewalk studies we found before were like one small city. Uh, and now we're able to look at a dozen cities at the same time. And like the study we're doing in Cambridge, Massachusetts looks at sidewalk obstructions, like benches and stuff like that. And like what we're finding, if you don't account for those, like the sidewalk widths are dropping by 30, 40%. And all the ones that you thought would be ADA accessible end up not being because of these things that we usually just ignore. Yeah. It's almost like uh, an obstacle course out there on many of the the sidewalks and, and sometimes any, even many of the bike lanes that are out there. And, and obviously I'm glad, glad to hear you guys are, are, are looking at this from an equity lens and really trying to understand what that impact is. We, we need to also really embrace the fact that neighborhoods and cities have to gentrify. They have to, to, to move in because without it, they just sort of crumble into <laughs> disarray. And so you're trying to reverse the, you know, the, the, the chaos nature of the fact that uh, entropy sort of takes over and, and things crumble. But at the same time, you don't want to have the negative impact of displacement. So there's a big difference between the a, the gentrification with a, the capital G and that is inferred displacement versus, yes, you know, these areas need, have been underinvested in, need some investment. And, you know, this is one of the things that are going to help those individuals who are living there now and will live there in the future. And uh, when possible, you're trying to make sure that you're, you're not actively involved in displacing people. So the result we found of that is that the relationship is bidirectional, but it's stronger in sort of the bike lanes and bike facilities coming after the neighborhood has changed than it is the other direction. I'll tell you an interesting story too. I remember it's probably like 10 years ago, I went to a, it was a public meeting sort of about the I-70 highway where obviously I think you know what happened, but the Colorado DOT has decided to do something similar to what Dallas is doing and sort of replace the highway with a, with a cap and a park on it. And, you know, the session people were talking about like, well, what if we tore down the freeway? What if we did this? You know, what if we did like a boulevard? And there was a, a CDOT representative there that said something to the effect of if we make the neighborhood too nice, then gentrification will happen. Like, so he, his point was that we need to keep it purposefully less nice to protect against that. And I was like, that can't be the solution to, to do that. Like there has to be either policy, like there's something we can do, but to purposely put in inferior infrastructure to keep displacement from happening, I was like, oh my God, like how, how are we, how is this the right answer? It can't be. Like somebody smarter has to be able to come up with something. Yeah. Cause you take that to the logical end and it's like, okay, we're, <laughs> we're not going to invest in this area. And, and it, it, yeah, no, it's, that's just, you know, really silly. Oh yeah. I, I was shocked to hear that. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't yet discussed that you want to make sure that we cover? My research covers, the gamut. So, I mean, I'm doing safety stuff, but active transportation and behavior and transit-oriented developments, um, health outcomes. So, so that like that street network paper, like the original paper looked at, you know, where people are safer. So, like I said, a lot of people want to live on a cul-de-sac because they think it's safer, but 
the type of streets and cities that surround that are less safe. But the next step was like, well, where, where do people walk and bike more? Is it on the gridded networks or the tree-like networks? And all things being equal, the tree-like ones saw, you know, order of magnitude differences on actual transportation. The next logical step is like, well, what about health outcomes? Like, are people actually healthier there? So that was the next study. We looked at obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease. And pretty much across the board, those same type street networks had better health outcomes. Like the obesity rates were dropping something like 50, 60%. Diabetes rates was 20% difference. And, you know, there's some self-selection issues, like maybe the people that choose to live there are healthier in the first place. But at the same time, the fact remains that, you know, like you talked before about encouraging healthy living. I think the problem we have is partially that, but also most of our built environments actively discourage it um, to the point where it's almost impossible. And you have to be thought of as someone that probably had a DUI and has to be doing this. But to not actively discourage it is sort of the first step. To encourage it is the next step. And it, it's a big transition. But, um, you know, I think like the benefits aren't just like in mode choice, but they extend beyond that to health, to like self-reliability, to getting people that can't drive or don't want to drive or for whatever reason, or economically want to put their money into something, something different. Like, so there's so many different reasons that I think they often get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your point is well taken because what we're really talking about here is we need to create environments that truly invite people to live a healthier, active lifestyle. We're not actively daring them to do this. It's, it, it shouldn't be like this challenge where you feel like you're taking your life in your hands if you, if you decide you know, to walk or bike to meaningful destinations. There are some people that are going to do this out of the goodness of the environmental heart, but there aren't a ton of those people. Like It has to be tangibly better in some way, whether it's faster or nicer. I mean, there has to be something that is better. And I think like when I talked about trying all the different modes and that initial bus route I took was a 75 minute and it was not pleasant. So that's not one that you want to try a second time, but you need something to get people to it. I, I think there's a lot that can be, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in that way. Like for some reason we can always find money for highway interchange, but we can't find the fraction of that to just plant some trees along a route or things like that to actually make it more pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Good stuff. So Wes, uh, for the listeners of the podcast that might be uh, inspired by some of the stuff that we've been talking about here today, what advice would you have for them if they'd like to make a difference in their community, in their neighborhood? You know, I think part of it is, is always starting locally. Like when I talked about how I get my research ideas, a lot of it is what sort of bothers me in the transportation system. So what bothers them? And I, I know you uh, talked to Jonathan Fertig on one of your pre previous podcasts. So he's someone who's, that's come into my uh, sustainable transportation course the last few semesters. To, uh, one of our assignments is this tactile urbanism assignment where I sort of force my students to get out and do something. And so he comes in and sort of talk about his experiences as – as inspiration to them. And he talks about adopting your commute, trying to make that commute nicer. And I, I think that is a good way to think about it. Like you don't have to go off to you know, places you don't know very well, but the places you do, I, I think 
What you need to realize is that you have just as much insight into that space as a professional does. Like they're relying on, you know, standards and guidelines that were written 50 years ago. And for them, when you start talking to engineers, keep asking why, like, why do we have to do this? And the deeper you dig, the sort of you start finding out that we really don't have to do it. A lot of those things that we call standards aren't standards. They're just guidelines and engineers can use what we call engineering judgment and they can almost do pretty much anything they want if they can do it with some evidence. And what my research provides is a little bit of evidence to do things that would be better for people. And that is what keeps these engineers away from sort of the liability threshold that they're so worried about. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'm so glad to hear that uh, you and, and Jonathan have connected. He, of course, has that Boston connection that you also share. Yes. Uh, I think that's where I first found about him, about him on Twitter when he was doing some of his initial um, tactical urbanism work back in Boston. Then I saw he was moving out here. We connected. Um, and I know he's doing a little bit less than he probably wants to in, in this world of late. He's, he's a character. Uh, <laughs> I love hearing his stories. Yeah, no, he, he really is a character. And, and he's really enjoying, too, being able to experience Colorado. He and his wife are getting out on their, their tandem mountain bike. Well, Wes, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you today and, and reconnecting. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. I had fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 58 of the Active Towns podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed this conversation with Wes Marshall as much as I did. He always has so many great observations from the research work he and his students are engaged in. Speaking of which, be sure to click on through to our landing page for this episode on our website for links, photos, and fun animated videos associated with this body of work. I can't emphasize enough how extraordinarily important it is to have researchers like Wes out there exploring these issues. It really does supply us all with helpful resources as we strive to transform our cities and communities into active towns, places that promote a healthy culture of activity. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. First, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any ideas for future guests or topics. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, again, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. Second, a final fundraising plug. If you're in a position to do so, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd make a contribution to Active Towns so I can keep producing this content for y'all. As a small nonprofit, please know that your donations, no matter how small, add up and make a big impact. To make a contribution, just head over to activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Well, that's all for now. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>